0: over the last couple of weeks, a lot of us have seen dramatic stories of a rescue in Houston as people have used their resources and their abilities to save those who were struggling or perishing in the water. And I think many of us have been overcome by the generosity and the grace of people from all over the country, really even all over the world. I did, however, run across an interesting story about a set of rescues that we don't often think about, and that was I ran across a story about animal rescues, people who had used their boats or their time or even risked their own necks to save animals that some of you may remember even in the early stages of Hurricane Harvey here in town you may have seen there was a horse that was stuck in some water near a bridge here in town and I was watching the live stream of our fire department rescuing the horse and I was cheering them on and they got the horse out but I read this article about all the different animals that people saved. There were dogs, there were horses, there were even even there was a pig that some people saved from the water. Uh, the most intriguing one to me though was the people who went and they risked their necks to save a group of bats. From the bottom of a bridge, the Wa Bridge in Houston, a famous bridge where there are, I don't know, millions of Mexican free-tailed bats. Now, the reason this was interesting to me was I thought, you know, on the surface, a bat doesn't necessarily look like an animal that you would want to save. All right, here's a picture of the face of a Mexican free-tailed bat. Some of you just gasped, oh my gosh right? I don't know for sure. I I think that I would invest my energy and resources to save a person who was drowning. At least I hope so. I'm not so sure about this animal. Like if I walked by and that face said, save me, I might keep walking, right? I'm just not 100% sure. Now I realize they're important for the You know, for ecological reasons, they're important for the environment. They eat a lot of insects, but they're not attractive, right? They don't present a lovable face. And so I thought it was remarkable that there were people who gave of their time and even risked their life and limb to save them. I thought those people are more gracious and kind than I am. Now, why do I share that? Because from a spiritual perspective, you and I don't present a very lovable face, all right, from a spiritual perspective, if somebody walks by and sees us dying in sin, they might not be inclined to reach and offer a hand to save. Right, from a spiritual perspective, we are filthy, we are sinful, we are dirty, we don't look great. Right, but we're in the same situation as those bats with rising water, the water of the consequences of our sin, death. An eternal separation from God. Right? And the good news is that God is a whole lot more gracious than we are. Right, A whole lot more gracious than we are. That he walks by and he sees people who are drowning in their sin. He sees people who are dying and facing the consequences of their own sin. Right, We deserve death. And yet God reached in and out of his grace, he rescued us. Right, When people were dead, God gave us life. By his grace. That's the message of the gospel. God's grace is infinite. God loved us so much that even when we presented a very unattractive face spiritually, God said, I want to save them. That's at the heart of the book of Ephesians. God saved people dying in sin. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 this morning. And the basic idea of Ephesians chapter 2 is this. When we were dead in our sin, God's grace gave us life. When we were dead in our sin, God's grace gave us life. If you followed with us through the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, what you'll remember is that basically the first chapter of Ephesians is Paul laying out all the blessings that we received as a result of knowing Jesus. So we're adopted into God's family. We're given forgiveness of sins. We're given eternal life. We're given the Holy Spirit, a promise of a future. We're given all of these things by God's grace. Now here in chapter 2, Paul essentially takes a step back and he says, here's how all that happened. You receive all of those blessings, everything God has to offer, absolutely for free, just by believing In Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And I want to say this this morning. If you don't understand the concept of grace, you will never understand what it means to be a Christian. Let me say that again. If you don't understand the concept of grace, you will never understand what it means to be a Christian. And here's why. Because every other religious system in the world, every single one insists that you have to bring something to the table in order to please God. You've got to do something or be something or be better or do something better. You have to clean off that ugly face. You have to, in some way, be worthy of God's favor. That's every other religion in the world. Think about the concept of karma for a moment. Karma says that eventually, I will get what I deserve. Either in this life or in the next one. Christianity says, thank God I don't get what I deserve. Christianity says, thank God, praise be to God, that people who deserved hell get heaven. That people who deserve death get life. That's grace. If you're in here this morning and in any sense you believe that you have to bring something or do something in addition to the work of Christ in order to receive eternal life, You're tragically wrong, and you're missing the good news that God, because of his love, saw people destined for death, and he saved us. That's the heart of Ephesians chapter 2. And if there's anything that I hope we accomplish this morning, it's that all of us will walk away with a deeper appreciation of the grace of God that we raise our hands in the air and we just say, I'm in awe that a perfect God, that a holy God would look at someone like me and give his son so I could have life. That's Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. One of the most powerful passages in the entirety of the New Testament, I think. Where Paul's going to take us first, though, is he asked to take us down into the depths of our situation. We need to understand frankly, how bad we really are, right? We have to understand the face that we present in our sin. That's Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. I want to read verses 1 through 3. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The first thing Paul tells us is this. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our sin. Before God intervened, we were dead. What does it mean to be dead? Well, a dead person is incapable of helping themselves, right? You cannot walk up to a corpse and say, hey, you look out of shape. You need to eat better. They can't do that. You seem sad. You need a psychologist. They're dead. There's nothing that they're going to do that's going to improve their situation. They can't communicate. They can't talk. There's nothing they're going to do apart from a miracle in order to get out of that coffin. They're dead. Dead is dead is dead. And Paul says, look, you were dead in your sin. You were separated from God. You were cut off from life. You were dead. All the way dead. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the classic movie. It's been 30 years since it came out. The Princess Bride. One of my favorite movies of all time. There's a great scene starring Billy Crystal as Miracle Max. I'm going to show a little clip here in just a moment. But you may remember that uh, the protagonist, Wesley, this great pirate and swashbuckler, finds himself tortured almost to the point of death. And his friends find him and they believe he's dead. So they take him to Miracle Max looking for help. Right? And here's what happens. I want to watch this short clip this morning. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. (laughs) Yeah, all dead, there's only one thing you can do, right? Right. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. You can't fix it. Mostly dead is slightly alive. All right, from a spiritual perspective, we're all dead. Okay, we're all dead. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, separated from God and destined for hell. All right, and then he's going to go on. He's going to say, dead in your trespasses and sins, in which... You formerly walked. Now, it's an interesting image, the walking dead, right? The idea of the walking dead first comes from the Bible. He says, you are walking around. You look like you're alive, but you're dead. And the reason is you are in your trespasses and sins, separated from God. You are walking around. He says, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, before knowing God, before God intervenes, here's what happens. Here's the state of our hearts. We just walk around and we do whatever the world says we ought to do. We just sort of go with the flow. And he says the problem is that the world system, all the values of the world around us, are really empowered and moved by the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. That we don't realize it, but before God intervenes, all we're doing is following the way the world wants us to go. We watch the things the world says we ought to watch. We think about the things the world says we ought to think about. We value those things the world says we ought to value. That is the spirit that is now at work, even now among those who don't know Jesus. Paul says, that was you, that was me. He says, before we knew God, we just went with the flow. Right, and the issue is it's not so much that someone who doesn't know Jesus is incapable of doing anything moral. Right? Somebody who doesn't know God can do some nice and kind and moral things, but the issue is they are simply motivated by the values of the world around them. And so if incidentally the world around says you ought to do something nice, we do something nice, but not for God's sake, for our own. Not to glorify God, but to glorify us. And so that's why Romans will say, even our righteous works were as filthy rags because they are shot through with sin, shot through with pride, shot through with self-exaltation rather than the exaltation of God. And Paul says, look, you just followed, he'll go on and say, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. Your body is corrupted and your mind is corrupted. No amount of education will fix it. No amount of exercise or good eating will make it better. No amount of counseling will fix this problem. This is a spiritual problem that goes all the way down to the core. And so Paul says, consequently, we were children of wrath. Children of wrath, meaning destined for the wrath of God. Children of wrath by nature. What does that mean? Because Adam sinned, we sinned. We have sinful ancestors and we inherited sin and then we chose to sin. Just like everybody in the world. So he paints this grim picture. There's nothing you can do to fix this. Think about the ways in which our world tries to fix this problem. We look around and we say there's a violence and there's racism and there's immorality and there's theft. And so maybe we can fix it with politics, right? Maybe if we pass the right laws, we'll fix the problem of sin. Or maybe we can fix it if we just get enough PhDs. And there are people who believe that if we're educated enough, we'll fix it. Maybe we can fix it through charity and acts of kindness. But Paul says, no, you're dead. You can't fix dead without a miracle. This is bad, 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 bad news. We're dead in our sin. Right, and so so we pause for a moment as we get to the end of verse three and we linger in that sad reality. We're dead in our sin before we now get to verse four. You're separated from God, but look at verse 4. says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He says, when we were dead in our sin, God's grace gave us life. I don't think there are two more beautiful words in the entire New Testament than these two words, but God. Right, right here at the beginning of verse 4. You were dead, but, but God. Being rich in mercy. God has a storehouse of mercy. We talked about this last week. Why does he give us his mercy? Because of his great love with which he loved us. God walked by as we were drowning in the consequences of our sin and said, I I love that person. Being rich in mercy, what does he do? He makes us alive. You may notice this morning the alive on our sign has taken some color and some life. As we move throughout the book of Ephesians, there are going to be more elements added to the sign to highlight what we're talking about each week. This week, we're talking about this concept of we have moved from death into life. When we were dead in our sin, God's grace gave us life. And I want to point out a few details about Ephesians chapter 2 and about the life that God gave. The first one is this. He gave us life in Jesus. He says when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And what did he do? He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? He's saying fundamentally God did all the work through Jesus and you and I did none of the work. Let me say that again. God did all the work to make us alive. You and I did none of it. Why? Because we were dead. What did we bring? We brought sin. We brought death. And God did all the work. You did none of the work. Nothing that we did got us out of the grave. When I was a sophomore in college, I took an engineering course in which the professor believed that people learned best in pairs that we needed to do all our work in pairs as partners. And so he assigned everybody in the class to a partner. And it just so happened that my partner, his name was Matthew. He lived on my dorm. He lived in my dorm, a floor up from me. And Matthew was just a wild overachiever. I don't know how else to describe it. Matthew is currently a professor, not at a and but a mechanical engineering professor at another university. And he was one of these guys that when you walked in his room, you wondered like, where was all the stuff? Everything was squared off. Everything was clean. He had a nice, tidy stack of all his work and you'd walk in and he was always working and it's like, he'd look up and go, come on in, you know, like you were in a professor's office. And so I was his partner for the semester in this course. And here's what would happen, 19 years old. We would set an appointment. We'd say, hey, let's get together and let's do the work for this class. Let's do our assignments. So I would walk in, and Matthew would be sitting at his desk, and I'd sit down and he'd go, Here you go, take a look at this. And he had done the assignment, the entire assignment, before I got there. Every time. And I would show up and I'd look at it and I go, Matthew, you've done the whole thing. Like we're partners. I'm at least supposed to like act like I'm doing something in this class, and he go, "No, it's okay. I did it. Why don't you just, you know, check it over for me?" So I became his secretarial assistant (laughs) for the course, and I, I would tell him regularly, like, "I'm supposed to be doing some of this, but but at 19, I didn't really know. Like, what do I do? The guy has done all the work before I walked in the room, before I showed up. I did nothing. He did everything." Right, that's what Paul's saying in verses four through seven. You did nothing. All you did was put yourself in a position by rebelling against God where you were destined for death. And God came in and he said, I got this. And he does all the work before you even show up on the scene. Because 2000 years ago, God's son died on a cross for your sin. And then he rose again and sin and death we're buried in the grave. And so you show up and you say, Ah, I'm dead. And God says, No, I've I've given you life. I did all the work. Before you even opened your eyes as a baby for the first time, the work was done. God made you alive in Jesus. And then it says, He raised you up and seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, I realize right now you're sitting here and you say, my seat does not feel heavenly. What's Paul getting at? That your spirit is now alive again. And one day your body will be there as well. You no longer dwell in the realm of death if you know Jesus Christ. You dwell in the realm of life and you live with him, seated in the heavenly places and raised up. Death can't touch you. Sin can't touch you. Satan can't touch you. So you no longer belong to their kingdom. Because he raised you up and he seated you with Christ. And it says, God did it so that in the ages to come, he might be able to display the superabounding riches of his grace. That all the universe will one day say, Look what God did. Toward people who were dead. He made us alive in Jesus. God did all the work. And then Paul's going to go on and he's going to say this. He gave it all for free. All the work he did, he gave the results of that work for free in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. One of the most famous passages in all of the New Testament. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Many of us memorized this passage as kids, and I think once we understand the context, it becomes more and more powerful. What does grace mean? What does this word mean? You see it all throughout the New Testament in the context of the gospel. Here's what it means. Grace means undeserved favor. Right, Grace is not only that God didn't let you drown, but it's that he raised you up and then he lavished you with all of his riches for absolutely free. The word for grace in the Greek language comes from the word for gift. God gave it. It's a gift. If you've ever met somebody with the name Keras, that's the Greek word for grace. It's a gift. It says God gave it for free. There's nothing you pay to receive eternal life. There's nothing you pay before God gives it. There's nothing you can pay after God gives it. There's no hidden set of requirements that you're going to have to fulfill in order to keep it. The gospel is not the Columbia House Record Club. Some of you may have joined this when you were a kid. Some of you are too young to know what I'm talking about the Columbia House Record Club, they would send you these fantastic brochures. You can get 12 CDs for one penny or maybe even for free. You can get five for free. And all you have to do is, right? But by then you weren't reading anymore because you got all this stuff for free. So how many of us, I did, we signed up and we got the 12 and we got to pick them and they were fantastic. And then the next month, the little card came. If you don't want Like the greatest hits of Sonny and Cher. Fill out this card and send it back. And you'd forget to fill out the card and then you'd get the CD and you'd owe them $15.99. And you couldn't get out of the Columbia House Record Club, right? (laughs) It was almost impossible to get out, but you were locked in. Once you were in, there was a secret ritual or code or some kind of letter you had to write to get out of the thing. And so you got in for free. But then there was this huge list of requirements on the back end that cost you money and your parents scorn because you had been suckered. Paul says, "Now the grace of God isn't like that. You're not going to show up at the gates of heaven and God says, all right, pay up. There's not going to be a moment where God says, oh, by free I meant uh, you really got to do a couple of things to keep it. Free means free. And he's going to go on in a moment, and we'll talk about this. He's going to say, to all who believe in faith, by grace you have been saved through faith. But these prepositions are important here. By grace, through faith. Grace is the foundation. It's given by grace. It's received through faith. And this is so hard. I'm going to guess that there are even some in this room this morning that you struggle to accept the freeness of the gospel because it seems too good to be true, but also because we're proud. Why is it hard to believe? It's not hard to believe in the gospel because there are these magnificent things we have to do. It's hard to believe because we're too proud to admit that we're dead and that we need help. And so I think often our desire to earn or contribute to our own salvation is rooted in this pride that I can bring something to the table. I don't really need everything God has to offer. When I was maybe eight My Uncle Greg sent me and my cousins and my brothers to the movies one afternoon. And as he was sending us off, he reached in his pocket and he gave me $20. And he said, here you go. Here's $20 for the movie. You guys have fun. And like any kid, I took the $20. I said, thank you, and started to turn away. And Uncle Greg said, no, 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 no. Come back here. Come back here. I need to show you something. I said, okay. He goes, give me the money back. I said, okay. So I gave him the money back. He goes, now, when I hand you the money, you can't just take the money and say, thank you. He goes, I give you the money. And I say, here's $20. And you say, no, 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 no. I don't need the money. I'm fine. I can't take your money. He goes, let's try it. So he hands me the money. I go, no, 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 no. (laughs) Right. And he goes, and I say, no, no, no. I insist you take the money. And then you say, no, no, no. And all this time I'm thinking, but I need the money, right? Like I, I actually don't have any money. I need the Why am I saying I don't need the money? And eventually like the third time he goes, okay, I insist. And he gives it, he goes, now it's okay to take the money, right? And I took the money and we went to the movies. I thought, why did we go through this? Because I have to present a mindset. I have to present a front that I don't need the money. To be dependent upon another person, especially in our culture is a source of shame. We don't want to ask for help. Ephesians 2 says, you better, or you're going to drown. You've got nothing but death. He says, God gives life for free. That's grace. And he says, by grace, you are saved through faith. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You don't have anything to brag about. What is faith? Faith is, in essence, placing your trust in the reality that God has given life. You say, I believe, I am convinced that Jesus died for my sin and he rose again, and I trust God through Jesus for eternal life. I often think of it like entering an airplane. When I walk onto an airplane and I sit down, What have I done to get us to our destination? Nothing. All I'm doing is I've trusted the airplane and the pilot to get me where we need to go. I cannot change the course of our flight. Not in any way. I can't make it better. I can't make it worse. I can't do anything. All I've done is I've entered the airplane. I've said, I trust that you're going to get me where we are going safely. That's faith. I say, I trust myself, my eternal future to the work that God did in Jesus Christ. Faith is not a work. Faith is simply receiving the work that God has already done. By the way, I should mention this issue of what is faith and how does it relate to works has been obviously one of the biggest discussions throughout the history of the Christian church. It reached its climax 500 years ago this year. On October 31st, 2000, not 2017, 1517, a guy named Martin Luther in Germany nailed 95 points or theses to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg. And at the heart of Martin Luther's 95 theses was the idea that nobody receives God's grace because of something they've done. That God gives eternal life for free, not because I pay the church, not because I buy my way out of purgatory, not because I do enough of the sacraments, not because I work hard enough, but because I believe in God. And if you've never read any of Martin Luther's writings on this subject, I'd encourage you to do so. There's a great biography called Here I Stand by Roland de Bainton, one of the best English biographies of Martin Luther. And he describes this reality, and you can read Martin Luther's writings where he says, prior to understanding this, I always saw God as angry and ready to kill me because I knew I was a sinner. Even Martin Luther's priest was like, hey, Martin, chill out a little bit. You're not as bad as you think you are. But Luther said, no, I'm worse But he said, as I read Romans and Galatians, all of a sudden, the righteousness of God, I understood the righteousness of God is not something I do. It's something God gives by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, all of a sudden, it's like the heavens opened up and I understood God differently. And he said, whereas before I hated God for his anger, now I loved him for his mercy. And it transformed the face of the Christian church because of a recovery of this idea of grace. God did all the work in Jesus. He gives all the work for free. And then verse 10, the result is our lives proclaim his grace. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See the way that chapter two begins this section versus the way that it ends at the beginning of the section. How did we walk? Well, we walked according to the course of this world. We couldn't do anything different. We walked in our sin right here in verse 10. What happens now? We walk what in the works that God prepared. Why is that? Well, the works are not something we do in order to earn God's favor. All right. That would deny everything that Paul has just said. Instead, the works are an outflow of all that God has done. And here's what happened is that God plucked you out of the water and gave you life. And he says, now look, look at what I've done. Look at who you are. You have the spirit of God that he talked about in chapter one. And so you don't have to follow the course of this world anymore. You don't have to follow what Satan's values are anymore. Instead, you are my workmanship and I've created works for you so you can walk in them. And as you walk In God's works, you display his grace. You are his workmanship that the universe looks and says, look what God made. Somebody who was dead, God made him alive. And so our works aren't a means of obtaining eternal life, but they are a response to the reality that we have it. So that we display God's craftsmanship. I have a friend on Facebook, who before his wedding, in the months leading up to his wedding, I found out that he was a craftsman. He was a woodworker. And so as a gift, and I've seen a few people do this, as a gift to his future bride, he made furniture. Like, he made the bed for their home, and he made the end tables, and he made a kitchen table. And I saw it all, and I thought, man, What an incredible man. I can't make anything out of wood. I could pound a couple of pieces together, but I can't make anything. And I would look at these and go, man, how long did he practice to do that? How much skill must he have to do that? Because the pieces of wood proclaimed the gifts and the character of the craftsman. That's what Paul is saying. We've been given life. And as we reflect the character of God in Jesus Christ, we proclaim the character and the grace of the workman. You're no longer dead in your sin. You're alive to Jesus Christ. He says, now God's paved the way for you. You just walk. You just obey what God has already placed for you to do so that your life proclaims his grace to a world that needs to hear it that's the good news. So as we close then, quickly, how do we respond? A few things. First of all, believe it. If If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, my prayer this morning is that you will stand in awe of all that God did to save all of us. Notice at the beginning of Ephesians 2, Paul says, look, we were all dead. We were dead. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. There's nobody in this room who is better than anybody else in this room because of something you have done or haven't done. And so if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I don't deserve that grace. Guess what? Nobody in this room deserves grace. That's the message of grace. God gives it for free. And so you say, you know what, I trust in what God has done that Jesus died for my sin and Jesus rose again and all the work's been done and I accept it. Believe in the good news. Secondly, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. If you know Jesus Christ, you repeat it to yourself. I think sometimes we are tempted to think, you know what, I've heard this gospel stuff all of my life. I know it, I'm good. But we are what we repeat. All right This morning, if I begin saying, blue, connect, connect, blue, connect, connect, goodbye, right? The rest of you, you could fill it all in, right? Because every week, like a pagan ritual, we repeat it, <laughs> don't we? We know it. It's part of our soul and heart. It's in our minds. We are the Aggies. The Aggies are we, right? And we remember it. We are what we repeat. So we remind ourselves of the gospel over and over every day, every single day, every hour I wake up and I say, praise be to God for his grace that Jesus died for me and rose again for what I couldn't do because I was dead. And then we proclaim it. We proclaim it by how we obey, but we also proclaim it with what we say. We go into our workplaces and our neighborhood and we share the good news. One thing we've been talking about throughout Ephesians is that we really want to challenge everybody. Be praying for two people in your sphere of influence with whom you will have significant spiritual conversations over the course of this semester. Maybe that's a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, two people that you say, I'm going to commit to daily pray for that person so I can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because when we were dead in our sin, God made us alive in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We're going to close by worshiping him. Let me pray as the band returns. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your grace. That although we deserve death, you gave us life. Although we deserve hell, you gave us heaven. And you gave it for free. Out of the boundless riches of your mercy and grace. Thank you that you love us when we are unlovable. We pray now that we would remember and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.